we are going to do something difficult this morning. We are in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we've been running through, and we're on a set time frame. Sometimes you think, I'd love to slow down here, but we are on an Advent to Easter journey. We are uh, working our way from Christmas, Advent, the, the first coming of Jesus, to through the story of his ministry to his death and then resurrection, which we will arrive at at Easter when we celebrate that. That, it, 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 that Easter story gives us the meaning of every Sunday. It's critical. I can't wait to get there. And yet, it's best understood when it's understood in light of the whole story. Who is this Jesus? And that's what we're in the midst of being confronted by in the Gospel of Matthew. So as we come to Matthew chapter 12 and 13, this is really kind of a, it's a, it's a climactic point. This is the pinnacle of the story. Everything now comes to a head. And we find ourselves in a paradox. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The things that he's been doing, it's been evident who he is. All of the signs, all of the miracles, he does those things not to, not to make a public statement and prove it, but it comes out of who he is because he is the Messiah. He is the King. He is God's Son. And so these things come from him and they demonstrate that he is who he is. And yet, as John says the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to those he gives the power, the right, to become children of God. That is, to those who believe on his name. So many did not believe. Those who should, those who were his own, he, he comes to Israel as Israel's Messiah, the promised king, the son of David. And yet they say, no, it's not on our terms. We don't want a Messiah like that. We have a different kind of Messiah in mind, one who will serve our expectations on our terms. And so he's rejected. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. So then, so what will we do? We live in a, in a strange paradox. We live in a paradox, a, a tension between two realities. We live in tension between the reality that Jesus and his kingdom has been and is being rejected. Okay? You say, you got no trouble with that. I've seen that recently. In fact, I heard it from somebody just yesterday when I named the name of Jesus. Okay, we live in this tension that Jesus and his kingdom has been and is being rejected. And yet, his kingdom is growing. That's the tension. That's the paradox. How can it be that Jesus and his kingdom has been and is being rejected and yet is growing? And what will we do? You see, if we swing too far on one side or the other, if I live over here in the reality that Jesus' kingdom has been and is being rejected, I'm tempted to withdraw. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to stay low. I'm going to keep my head down. No, no, no sense taking shots for no good reason. I mean, I'll just lay low. Jesus finally come. It'll be better then. But it's a, for now's the time just to stay safe. I could withdraw. But wait, I don't want to withdraw. The kingdom of God is growing. And so the kingdom of God is growing. It's going to be great. It's, it's, it's becoming marvelous. And so I'm going to jump in with both feet. If I focus over here on the other side that, that the kingdom of God is, is growing... 
I might at times be disappointed. I might at times, with the response that I get when the kingdom is supposed to be growing, and yet the message of Jesus I find is rejected, I might be discouraged. I might be despairing. I might say, well, what's the use anyway? Well, I thought, but it doesn't line up with my experience. We live in the tension. We live in the tension of Jesus and his kingdom has been and is being rejected, and the kingdom is growing. Okay? Now, what I want to do in chapter 12, you see that rejection. It reaches its climax. Who, this is Jesus, and yet Jesus is rejected. And then in light of that, chapter 13, Jesus then turns to his disciples in the face of this rejection. So then what are we supposed to do? And he explains to them what they must continue to do for the sake of the kingdom, which will continue to grow. It didn't play out the way that they expected, and yet God's kingdom is growing. And so this is what we must do. And there you have the parable of the sower, and it goes on from there. So I want to I very briefly, if you looked at your notes this morning, the notes that are in the, in the bulletin, you might want to pull those out, the sermon insert that's in the bulletin. If you look at that, you say, oh my goodness, there's like a dozen points here. Really? Seriously? It's a good thing we have a potluck today, right? Because we're going to need lunch. I want to go over chapter 12 really, really briefly. I want to just give you a feel for chapter 12 so you sense what's going on, and then I want to focus applicationally through those seven parables, okay? Because they should help us today the same way that Jesus spoke them to his disciples in the face of that rejection so that the disciples would continue to be his effective witnesses even while Jesus and his kingdom were being rejected, and yet it would grow. That's the tension we're going to live in. And this passage is going to help us to do that. So let's pray. Father, open up your word to us. There is much here that we could spend all kinds of time on. And yet, Lord, there's something particular for us this morning. Would you help that to be clear? Father, would you, would you by your spirit then speak your word into our hearts where we need to hear it? In the midst of perhaps the rejection of Jesus that we have felt sharply and personally. Or perhaps in terms of the exhortation to, to join what you are doing in your kingdom. Because that's what matters most of all. So Lord, speak to us where we need it this morning. As you know that, Lord, would your spirit speak through your word to us, your servants. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in chapter 12... Overview of chapter 12, you, first of all, you have the, there the disciples are, they're going through the field, and they, they pull a, little, a few heads of grain off the field, and they rub it between their hands, and the Pharisees catch them at it. And they say, wait a minute, you're working on the Sabbath. What is this? What, what is it you're doing? There's no problem with them going through somebody's, somebody's other fi else's field and taking the grain they can eat on the way. I'm told that you can walk through somebody's orchard and pick an apple and be charged with theft. But in Israel, that was allowed. You could go through somebody's, somebody's field and take an apple off the tree and eat it or take, take wheat like that in your hands. You could not take your sickle and your cart into somebody else's field and start cutting all the grain and carting it off. But you could snack along the way, perfectly legit. It was a mercy provision for the poor. And yet, the Pharisees had defined work in this way that if you are rubbing the together those grains uh, to, 
to break the uh, chaff, the, 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 the outer husk. If you, were, if you would do that between your hands, that's work because that is threshing. To pull the grains off the stalk in the first place is reaping. You're gathering harvest and now you're threshing the grain, blowing the chaff away. That's work on the Sabbath. How does Jesus answer it? Look in chapter 12, verse 3. They said, this is not lawful. And Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? And he gives an example of when David took the bread from the tabernacle that was left for the priests. After it was used in the tabernacle, it was then to be given to the priest. And yet the priest gives it to David. What is David doing eating that? So Jesus brings that example up. And then he says in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? The priests are still working even on the Sabbath day. And yet that does not break the Sabbath. What is Jesus doing? First of all, for us, what, what difference does this make to us? David and the priests in the temple, what's going on? It's okay for Bob to work on Sunday? Is that what we, we're going to take away from this? How about this? What Jesus is doing is he reaches back into Old Testament scripture and history and he, he tells these people gathered around today that God's word from a thousand years ago is relevant today to the situation at hand. A thousand years ago. Sometimes we might think, oh, the Bible's an old book. It's kind of out of date. It's relevant for the situations at hand today. Even as Jesus said, this is relevant a thousand years early. If you don't like David, let's go back even earlier, he says to Moses and the law. God's word is still relevant and speaks to us concerning what it is that's going on around us in life today. Jesus is both biblical and merciful. Jesus concludes here, in this section about their demand for law. And he says, if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy more than sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I I think another takeaway for us, just to remember, just in passing, is we would do well to be both biblical and merciful. Sometimes it's easy to be biblical in the terms of what we see wrong around us, particularly in the lives of others, right? Right? We would do well to be both biblical and merciful toward others. We'll talk more about that as we go. Jesus is, is, is opposed for the good things that he's done. He goes on from there. He, he enters a synagogue. as a man with a withered hand. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? Because they want to accuse him. And Jesus says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored, healthy like the others. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Mercy. Mercy and biblical. I I love the point here. How many of you, if you had a sheep... And he fell into a hole. You'd, of course, get the sheep out of the hole, even if it is the Sabbath, but you don't want to heal this man. That would be a violation. He said, aren't, 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 aren't people more important than sheep? Aren't people more important than animals? Can I pause and make an application here? Can I meddle just a little bit? I actually support a, the, uh, the notion of people for the ethical treatment of animals. 
People must treat animals well. That is a mandate from our creator. Our creator. We, were, we were set over his creation to be in the image of God over the rest of creation, not to use them up for our pleasure, but to care for and steward this creation. And yes, I eat meat. And yet, we don't, for instance, I, I don't just go wantonly kill animals because killing animals is fun. That's not good stewardship. Okay, so... In general, and I know any, any cause can be taken to an extreme, and they often are, but what, I think we need more than people. If, if people for the ethical treatment of animals is important, what about people for the ethical treatment of people? Why is it that we can, can uh, go crazy about animals, and yet, in this country, one of the most dangerous places for an infant is within the mother's womb? Why is that? Why is it that an organization like Planned Parenthood that says we are here for women's health care, we are all about women's health care, we do mammograms? Actually, no, they don't. Not a one. We, we, do, we do prenatal care and training. Actually, no, they don't. Not at all. But oh, we're not. We're for abortion being, being, being uh, safe but, but rare. 93% of the mothers that walk into a Planned Parenthood clinic leave without their baby. What about a culture that encourages that and supports that? What about the men who took the woman there, drove her there in one way or another, paid for the procedure? Oh, we want to put some sort of scandal upon the woman in the midst of this culture where, where all of us share in this. Are not people more important than animals? If we will shelter animals, if we will adopt out animals that weren't wanted and were cast aside, will we foster children? Will we step, step up and say, here am I, if there's a child in need, send him to us, send her to us. If there's a young mom that doesn't have a place to go, we will take her in. Are not people more important than sheep? We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Oh, if I'm going to summarize chapter 12 instead of preach it, I better move along here. From chapter 22, that's where the climax begins. Jesus and God's kingdom are rejected. What do they do? They say, you are not the Messiah. You are the Antichrist. That's what they tell him. These signs that you do, everybody says them and say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees answer, no, he can't be the Messiah. He is not. He must be the Antichrist. He's not doing these things by the Holy Spirit. He is doing these things by the spirit of Satan. That's what they conclude. And oftentimes, the decision about Jesus is based on the implications. If we say he is the Antichrist, if we embrace that, that, that means something for us. We've got to come in line. We're accountable to this Jesus. He is God's son then. Uh-oh, I don't like that. What are the other options? Well, we'll label him the Antichrist. But Jesus says, that doesn't hold water. An old friend of mine used to say, that dog won't hunt. Oh, there I go with the animals again. The, 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 the fact, the things that he's doing are good things. The casting out of demons. He said, if, if, if Satan is casting out Satan, his kingdom cannot stand. It doesn't make sense for you to say that I am the Antichrist if I'm casting out demons, if I'm healing, if I'm restoring humanity that has been broken in the fall. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. That dog won't hunt. They're being inconsistent 
because they insist on this, rejecting him. That's the point. And then Jesus goes on to say something that is to us very scary. He talks about an unforgivable sin to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And now you're thinking, oh my goodness, have I done that? If Jesus says that is unforgivable, maybe I have done that. Maybe I've talked against the Spirit. What Jesus, in this context, Jesus is talking about blaspheming the Spirit in saying that what the Spirit is doing through God's Son, Jesus, the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus is not the Spirit's testimony, it's actually Satan's testimony instead. So blaspheming the Spirit is saying the Spirit and his work is Satan and his work. It's the complete rejection of the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus. That is not something a a believer does. If you're worried about the the unforgivable sin, the the blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's probably because you have not done it. You You have not rejected. You're concerned. You want to walk with Jesus. You want to believe in him. You don't want something to be in the way. That's te- the testimony of somebody who believes the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus rather than rejecting it as a false testimony. You see, the Spirit witnesses to the Son. And the reason, if I could simplify this, the reason that to reject the testimony of the Spirit is unforgivable because there's no forgiveness anywhere else except in the one Jesus whom the Spirit testifies to. Okay? There's something going on that's almost time-bound in this moment where Jesus came to his own at a moment in history and his own did not receive him. There's a rejection there that that offer is going to pass on from them. And they'll not, it'll not continue with them. But even more broadly, concerning the Spirit, the rejection of the Spirit is unforgivable only because there's, no, there's salvation in no other name than Jesus, whom the Spirit testifies of. And so to reject Jesus is to reject the testimony of the Spirit. Say, oh, I don't want to commit the unforgivable sin. Then believe in Jesus. Believe the testimony of the Spirit. And then all All of my guilt, all of my sin is forgiven in Jesus. But Jesus and God's kingdom are rejected as the Antichrist. And then they they have the gall to go on from there and say, "Uh, Rabbi, see, they have explained to the crowd, he's the Antichrist, it's from the devil. He says, okay, well, you you say this is who you are, we want to see a sign from you. We want you to do something to prove it. And Jesus says, no sign's going to be given. How does that add up? He's been doing miracles all along. He hasn't been doing the miracles to prove it. In fact, often he tells people, don't tell anybody. He hasn't been doing the miracles to prove it. These things have come out of who he is. The king is here, so the aroma of the kingdom is in the air. It can't be stopped. But to perform on command that maybe his miracle can measure up to their expectations, Jesus is not interested. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples on another occasion that even that those who don't believe Moses and the prophets, those who don't believe the testimony of God's word, will not believe even if someone were to come back from the dead? And he, said, he tells them now, the only sign that's going to be given is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. Resurrection. That's going to be the only sign he'll give. And when Peter stands on the day of Pentecost, what does he preach? He preaches from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. How do we know? He says, because he was raised from the dead, just like David said. 
So, Jesus and his kingdom are rejected, and for those who reject, no miracle is going to convince him, and yet Jesus is going to be risen from the dead because he must be. If our sins are born by him, he must die. And if our sins then are paid in full, if our sins are put away because of his death for me, then death can no longer hold him. He must rise from the dead. His death is for our sin. His resurrection proves that his death is infinite and put away our sin so that in his resurrection we can be raised with him to walk in newness of life. Jesus and God's kingdom are rejected. No miracle will convince them. And then there are results of rejecting him. He, he, he explains that if he cast out demons, but there's nothing, there's nothing else that inhabits the person, sooner or later the demon's going to come back with all of his friends. And there's that little, little cameo in here. And then he, he, the, the chapter closes with his mother and his brothers are outside. Remember, his brothers, at least, do not yet believe. They think Jesus is again making a spectacle of himself. He's going to say something. The crowd's, the crowd's going to get so fired up that there's going to be trouble. There's going to be a mob. We've got to get Jesus out of there. Right? And he says, and they tell him, your mother and your brothers are calling for you. And he says, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? And this is the note the chapter closes on. He stretched out his hand towards his disciples, his followers, and he says, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Many have rejected Jesus and his kingdom have been and are being rejected. But to those who receive him, he gives the right to become the children of God. He gives the right to become joint heirs with Jesus of the Father. To those who believe in him, he says, you are my brothers, my sisters. You are my family. And here's one of the first places where this notion of the church as God's family begins to surface. So then, what are we going to do? In the place of the kingdom is being rejected and yet God is building his family, what are we going to do? Now, in the midst of this rejection, where, where the disciples thought, well, Jesus makes it plain enough, the people are going to come on board, the Messiah is going to be recognized, the kingdom's going to start, Rome's going to be kicked out, everything's going to be wonderful, all that's wrong will be made right, God's will will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And yet, the Pharisees, the rulers, are not playing along. They're not going along with it. They reject him because he doesn't fit their expectations. So what about the kingdom then? What are the disciples supposed to do? What are you and I going to do in a day when Jesus and his kingdom are being rejected? At this juncture, Jesus begins to speak to that in chapter 13 in a series of parables, the parables of the kingdom. The first one is the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower we know fairly well. A sower went out to sow. A farmer went out to plant. And he sowed some seeds, fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, and they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since there was no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and they did not have root. They withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus saying? First of all, keep telling, keep sowing the seed, no matter the response. There will be those who oppose. There will be those who, who seem to go along. They seem to be believing, but it doesn't stick. It doesn't last. It fades away. And yet there will be some 
who will believe. Even in the midst of rejection, the kingdom will still grow. Keep telling. Keep sowing. You see, I tried once. They didn't hear. I'm not that good at evangelism, apparently. I'm not that good at sharing my faith. I'm not that good at witnessing for Jesus, apparently. Because I tried, and it didn't work. Folks, the problem was the soil, not the seed or the sower. The point of Jesus' parable is the soil is the problem. We need soil that is prepared. One of the reasons we pray before we talk, we talk to, we talk to God about people before we talk to people for God because if God doesn't prepare that soil, it won't happen. But the parable of the soil tells us, the parable of the sower tells us that some will believe. Some of the seed will take root and bear fruit. So don't give up. Even in the face of this rejection of Jesus, don't give up. Don't withdraw. Stay in God's work. Don't be surprised if they don't believe. It's a miracle if they did, but some will. God is still doing that. Secondly, don't be, don't be worried. He carries on the analogy a little bit further. Don't be worried by weeds in the wheat. He goes on to describe that, well, here we go, down in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. That builds right on the, on the parable of the sower, right? So a man sows good seed, but while his men are asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants come up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the masters came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said, Well, do you want us to go and pull up all the weeds? No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along them also. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. Later on, both the parable of the sower and that parable are going to be explained. The enemy is the devil. And he's planting, he's planting evil in the midst of the church. He's planting evil in the midst of the wheat, the good seed, in order to confuse, in order to mislead. Don't be worried by the weeds and the wheat. Don't be dismayed by those in our midst who appear like they believe, but might not. In time, the true believers and the pretenders are both going to be evident. God will sort out the difference. The church isn't meant to be perfect, and the church is not given first to judgment. We'll leave that to God. God will be the one to judge. God, will, God knows the difference. Watch and see what God is going to do. You know, Freedom House is a wonderful ministry that our church is, is, is blessed to be a part of. And to hear uh, some of the stories from them, you'll hear of radically, gloriously saved out of, a, out, of a, out of a miserable, broken background. And yet sometimes further in that background, there was a Christian faith. There was a Christian family that was departed from, and yet sooner or later that faith is returned to. Wow, well, when, when was the person saved then? Did that seed way back then finally bear fruit only at the end? Or was there fruit before that was hidden in the weeds for a while and yet reemerges again? It wasn't uprooted by premature judgment. Be careful how we judge. Be careful how quickly you write somebody off or give up on them. It may be that we need to be, what I say earlier, biblical and yet merciful. 
Remember mercy. Maybe in my life, there are still weeds in the wheat. Don't be discouraged. Don't be doubting. I wonder in the midst of this moral failure, am I saved at all? Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes. In him is salvation. It is not in my performance. Yeah, normal Christianity then is to grow and bear fruit. And yet, don't be discouraged by weeds along the way. Don't let the enemy steal away your faith because there are some weeds mixed in with the wheat. Don't judge anything before the time. The next two parables he gives are the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. I'm going to put these two together. Both of them have the same point. Out of, out of a small start, it's going to grow big. The kingdom is small. The disciples thought there'd be much a, a wholesale acceptance, and there is not. There's been a wide-scale rejection with a few believing. And yet from that small start, like a mustard seed, the mustard tree grows into this huge thing out of a very, very tiny seed. Don't despise small beginnings. You know, worldwide, most churches, 80% of churches worldwide are under 100 people. 80% of churches around the world. And yet in those same smallest churches, that's where per capita you have the largest number of, of salvation experiences, conversions, people coming to faith in Christ. Historically in America, it's those smaller churches that have been the most sacrificial givers and funded the lion's share of mission ministry around the world. Don't despise small things. Don't despise, despise small works, small beginnings. The parable of the leaven, do this little thing and see where God takes it. He describes the leaven, and the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. You see, she hides it in there. Nothing. And yet what happens? Over time, it begins to grow. And it doesn't just grow in a little bit where the leaven is. It works through the whole loaf, and its effect is felt. The kingdom starts small, and almost imperceptibly, unobserved, it begins its work, and it grows. God is growing his kingdom. That's why we have this paradox. That's why we have this tension of the present age, that Jesus and his kingdom are being rejected and the kingdom is growing. And so we'll be right in the midst of that, knowing there will be rejection, and yet the kingdom is growing. Now he turns to his disciples in private, and he gives them a few more words of encouragement. These of all have been kind of more out in the public with those who were still listening to his teaching after the Pharisees' rejection. But now in private, he's going to go a little further. Don't hesitate. The kingdom is worth everything, first of all. There's the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found and covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field or it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had in order to buy it. Don't hesitate. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. It's worth any sacrifice, even if others have overlooked its value, and that's what the disciples have experienced. Those who should have known best don't see the value of it, and Jesus says, don't be discouraged. It is worth it all. Giving yourself, devoting yourself to the growth of the kingdom of heaven is worth everything because there's nothing better than what God is doing, redeeming humanity back to himself. There's nothing bigger than that in all of creation at this moment, and God has invited us in. 
God's greatest work done in Jesus himself, and God is inviting you and I in whatever little part he gives you. Mustard seed, leaven. The Apostle Paul, great evangelist, great missionary, wrote a bunch of books of the Bible, right? Started very small. Remember when he's let down over the wall in a garbage basket? He goes to the other disciples or apostles, and they don't, they're not sure what to do with him. They send him back to Tarsus, and he, and, he, and he lives and serves on the backside of nowhere for about 10 years. Paul had a very small beginning, and yet look what God did with him. Maybe the small beginning that you should give yourself to, as I said before, is with small people. Ah, they might reject you, but not so openly. They're so sweet about it, Right? Those small people, they can't hurt you much. Well, they might bite, but they won't hurt you much. Maybe start there. But give yourself, don't hesitate to give yourself your time, your treasure, your testimony, your reputation for the sake of God's kingdom. Next he says, don't judge now. Cast the net and let God sort it out. He reminds them, this is something like the parable of the weeds, the kingdom of heaven in verse 47, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into the containers, threw the bad away. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. God will sort it out. For right now, just throw the net. You know, when you're fishing, I remember when I, w- when I would do something, it wasn't for fish, although we, we, we would catch some little mullet, but it was mainly for shrimp. We would, we would throw a cast net when I lived in the south in Mississippi. We would throw this cast net out over the water, and then you'd pull it back in and you'd see what you got. Now, in that murky water, if you spent all your time looking over the water, I wonder where's a good place to throw the net. Hmm, I wonder if there's anything there or there or maybe there. If you spent all your time figuring where maybe I ought to throw the net, instead of throwing the net, you would catch nothing. Yeah, you go home hungry. Throw the net. He says, throw the net, let God sort it out. Throw the net, you'd be surprised at the person you never thought would take you up on that invitation and that here they are. Just throw the net. Let God sort it out. And finally, the kingdom of heaven will be all that is promised. Look what he says at the end. Have you understood these things? Well, they think they do. Maybe a little. Maybe we're started. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What Jesus is saying to his disciples here is, I have not given up plan A. God has not gone to plan B because plan A didn't work. God is continuing to work his kingdom plan. And he is going to continue to bring out of that treasure the old things, the promise of the kingdom as the prophets and as Moses anticipated it. All of that is still going to be true and it's going to happen even as God said through them. And yet he said, it's even bigger. It's even grander. There's something new. Jeremiah talked about a new covenant. That that the kingdom is going to grow beyond what this generation ever dreamed of. And you and I are welcome into it. You and I are blessed with that blessing God promised Abraham that in his descendant all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We had no claim to a Messiah. And yet... His death for my sins. Forgiveness, joint heirs, brother, these are my brothers and sisters, Jesus said, those who believe in me. 
something new, something even bigger than they had imagined. Look what God is doing, and he invites us into it. Yeah, we live in a day when Jesus and his kingdom are being rejected. That's true. You will experience that. And if you dare to step out, if you dare to join in the battle for the kingdom, the ministry of the kingdom, the testimony of the kingdom, if you dare to tell somebody about Jesus, you're going to experience rejection at times. You will also witness the miraculous. You will witness the blind scene when all of a sudden somebody's eyes are opened. Jesus died for me. You're going to witness the deaf hearing when they respond to that word of God that has rolled past them before like water off a duck's back. And all of a sudden, it penetrates. And it goes from the ear to the head to the heart. God does that. If you join in what God is doing, sow the seed, tell the story, Spread the word. There will be rejection. There will be disappointed. And there will be miraculous, wonderful fruit that will last for eternity. And God invites you and I into this eternal work that he is doing. What am I going to do? The kingdom of God and Jesus God's king are being rejected. And yet his kingdom is growing. And he invites us. I want to be right in the middle of it. Amen? Let's pray. God, would you use us? Lord, in ways we don't know how, except, Lord, we would set ourselves before you. We come to a time of offering that we do in response to your word because, Lord, all that we give comes in response to your grace to us. But, Father, also... There's a time here for us to offer more than what we have. It's a time to offer who we are. Lord, to again present ourselves to you, Lord. Here am I, send me. Lord, here, here am I, use me. Father, would you do that today? Lord, maybe it's the placing of someone's name on, our, on a heart. This is somebody I need to tell more about to the kingdom. Maybe there's some way that I need to step into the doing. Maybe it's the sewing of quilts that leads to the sewing of the gospel. Some other practical manner in which I can come alongside and love those who need to see the love of Christ. Father, would you use us in the miraculous, amazing, quiet, out in the open growth of your kingdom? Father, would you use us We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.